You've landed here at episode 223. Wow, wow, wow. Talk about having hope and taking action. I'm guessing most of you listen to this podcast because you believe that doing things differently should be the name of the game in modern healthcare. At least that's a big motivator for why I put this together in the first place. And so if you know anyone with cancer, you've had it yourself, or you simply know the statistics on how likely it is that both you and I will end up with cancer or some kind of chronic metabolic disease, then you must listen to this episode as it will change the way you think and move forward with your healthcare plan. This episode discusses a totally new healthcare model and cancer hospital design that is not just an idea. It's fully underway being created in the Western world. And on this episode, we talk about the holistic and integrative approaches that back this new model, the pricing structure, and the vision for how we can all access this unique and comprehensive healthcare model, where all modalities have a seat at the table that even includes regenerative farming. It's honestly the future. And if we're to survive the next 100 to 200 years as a species, it honestly has to be. Sit tight. This is phenomenal. Let's get into it. Welcome to the How to Not Get Sick and Die podcast. You've tuned in because you want to start taking your health seriously, so you don't, well, get sick and die. Here we talk all things health, nutrition, and human optimization. Let's jump into it with your host and resident scientist, Maddie Lansdowne. What's up, my healthy friends? How good is it to be here on another episode of the How to Not Get Sick and Die podcast? Look, because I can't hear what you're saying, I'm going to put my money on that you said it's bloody fantastic. Now, in 2023, it's my mission to coach 500 people to stop the binge eating and savage self-talk cycle so they can lose weight whilst feeling in control and without restriction along the way. So I'm often asked by people, how did you get to be a nutritionist and an emotional eating coach working mostly with women when you're a dude? Which, if you're inside a hospital or a healthcare facility, would be a pretty strange question to ask all of the male doctors why they work with female patients. But in a hospital is exactly where this began for me, and specifically as part of a cancer research team. Despite being young and thus so far down the ladder of importance, I was virtually irrelevant. It quietly began a deep craving to find a sense of logic and sense in the, in the cancer environment to what was presented to me was a very illogical uh, system with the conventional cancer treatment. And on my journey of learning and research about the metabolic theory of disease and other integrative and more wholesome approaches to cancer, I came across today's guest, who first guest starred on this podcast on episode 95 before we'd even hit triple digits. So it was a long time ago. Um, so once you're done here, I highly recommend bouncing back to episode 95 because it's amazing. Uh, so who, 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 who is it? Who is it? Dr. Nasha Winters, who is a global healthcare authority and best-selling author in the integrative cancer care and research consulting. She's basically a celebrity with physicians around the world, and I can confirm this status. I basically go into convulsions and make weird noises trying to explain how amazing this woman is. She's educated hundreds of professionals in the clinical use of mistletoe and has created robust educational programs for both healthcare institutions and the public on incorporating heavily researched integrative therapies in cancer care to improve outcomes. Dr. Winters is currently focused on, and this is really cool, and we're going to talk about it today because I think everyone should know about it. She's focused on opening a comprehensive metabolic oncology hospital and research institute in the US where the most advanced integrative therapies will be offered. 
This facility will be in a residential setting on a gorgeous campus against the backdrop of regenerative farming, EMF mitigation with full retreat vibes that allow for actual sleep to occur because if you've ever tried to sleep in a hospital, then you know it's no wonder nobody gets well, along with state-of-the-art medical technology and data collection to improve patient outcomes. I'm so glad she's here. She doesn't even know this, but she's very much a mentor slash idol in my eyes. And well, let's do it. Welcome to the show, Nasha. Stop it. You love monkey. What a great star. Love monkey. That's great. <laughs> Thank you, Maddie. That's, well, that's what you are. You come out and the world is just a just, just giant love bubble. So I just love it. I love it. It's great to be back. I can't believe 95 and you're now at 240 something. You have been a busy man yeah. on this on this podcast. So well done. Thank you for bringing all of these amazing people to the world that I even, I even get to listen in on. So it's really fantastic. Thank you. Well, thanks for coming back. Like, speaking of being busy, what have you been up to? So much, right? Everyone just pull up a chair and a glass of tea or wine or water, whatever you got going on. So busy. I, so my, my word for 2022 had been catalyst. Mm-hmm. And catalyst was about literally really launching or starting what I'd set out to do almost 30 years ago, um, which is to build this hospital that you mentioned. And the year 2023 that we've now stepped into just momentarily um, is the year of momentum. And so it definitely catalyzed last year. We are now in the momentum. There is no stopping us. And if you and your listeners recall, you know, my journey started out 31 plus years ago as a terminal cancer uh, patient who was given no options, no choices. Um, it was too far gone for them to do anything about it. And so that put me on this crazy journey, which has led me to, um, as many of my patients had called to the, the School of Savior Ass University. Um, of which I have several degrees, I feel, at this point in my life. And I've also had the unbelievable pleasure of supporting tens of thousands of other patients and now hundreds of other physicians helping their thousands of other patients um, evaluating for and supporting patients on the cancer journey. And so I'm, like you, very passion and purpose-driven, and it is absolutely um, the momentum is there that we're seeing changes in healthcare in general and oncology in particular that I didn't think I'd get to live to see the day for. So that's what I'm up to. Um, just enjoying this unbelievable ride. And um, now the momentum is there and I just get to bring in, attract in all the other people who want to see the changes as well. Yeah. which And I think there's a growing audience of that that group of people. And if not the pandemic, but something has been catapulting people towards alternatives in, in the presence of, I guess, uh, you know, I don't know if I use the word lightly, but a failing medical industry. Um, because, and my, what I mean by that is obviously the pharmaceutical companies don't feel like they're failing. They're, you know, trillions of dollars deep, but, um, the people that are the recipients of the care that doesn't really seem to resolve anything. Um, or at least it does temporarily. And it's sort of, we sort of say, Hey, you don't need to change at all. We can just take this medicine and you can continue doing the things that caused the problem to begin with. Um, and so I think, yeah, the pandemic really woke a lot of people up to, Oh, there might be a few layers to this conversation that I'm, you know, unaware of or have previously been not privy to. Um, if people, you know, for people that haven't been on their own disease journey. Um, and, and I, and I might have mentioned this last time we spoke, but. I get so many people, it's like their third or fourth cancer relapse before they're even open to talking to me about nutrition and cancer. Do you, do you find that by the time people get to you, they're on their second or third run through the process? 
You know, it's interesting. Um, when I first started practicing over 20 years ago in clinical practice, after going through medical school and my own um, education and my own survivorship of all of this, thrivership of all of this, the first few patients I saw that were dealing with cancer were coming to me very much with very, just very specific goals of, please just help me get through my standard of care treatment. Don't tell me anything else. I just want kind of the Band-Aid to help me deal with the nausea, the Band-Aid to deal with the, the, the burns, the radiation burns, the Band-Aid to help me just get through and tolerate standard of care. That was the vast majority of the patients I saw into the late um, 1990s and into the early 2000s. And then something started to shift where I started to have a few patients show up saying, I don't want any standard of care at all. Like the other end of the spectrum saying, I'm just coming to you because I'm absolutely not going to do that. That would be me. How much? Right? Exactly. Like people are like, I'm not doing that. And I was like, oh, crap. Um, where I was in the state that I was in, it was not licensed for naturopathic medicine. Um, naturopathic medicine in general is still kind of the, you know, the ugly stepchild, you know, at the Thanksgiving dinner <laughs> table and, you know, all of those types of things. We It was just a scary time to even want to venture into that. So what I realized about myself and about where things are going is I've always been, I'm, I'm a Libra. And so I'm very much about bridge building, bridge making, seeing both sides. And what I recognized is that for me, standard of care didn't fail me. There was just nothing standard of care could offer me. So I had to go out and venture on my own and unbeknownst to me, I didn't expect to survive. And yet I did. And as I did, I wanted to learn more. And as I learned more, I helped other people do the same. And over time, I started to recognize that there, there is this, this we, this and, this both process that can happen and that we can be using standard of care so much better than we do today. So much better than we do today. And we can be using quote unquote alternative medicine so much better than we do today. I think both of them have many deficits and I think both of them have many strengths. And so I feel like kind of the weave maker in my life and in my world around me of knowing kind of how I can repurpose and sort of upgrade elements of standard of care with really well vetted, well thought out um, uh, components of alternative care and bringing those forward for an entirely new healthcare system. And in doing that, what I found is I kind of focused my intention there. I also started meeting patients who were requesting the same. They're like, I am going to do chemo or radiation, but I want to do it differently. I want it to be based on me, not on based on the, you know, the standard deviation of that particular research trial. It's like, does that therapy apply to me? Does it not? And we have the advances today in our technologies and our testing to be able to actually test somebody and know if the therapy is going to work well for them or not. We're able to test their terrain, which you and I can dig into and unpack a little bit more here in a moment, to see whether that therapy is going to work well for them or not. And we can find other therapies outside of standard of care that will make the proper standard of care work even better for that patient. So the patient comes through it virtually unscathed by the sort of the rigors of a standard of care treatment, but also then a, like understands, as you alluded to, why they got here to begin with, why they ended up with this diagnosis and how to clean up their environment so they don't visit that diagnosis again. Because standard of care statistics show that patients who've been given a cancer diagnosis will over 70% of the time have another recurrence at some point. And so we're not, that's not, that's not okay in any universe. That's not okay. And so what I yeah. find is that we're getting to the point where we have patients that are far savvier today than often the physicians are 
um, that are available to help guide them through this. And so that's my mission is to help train standard of care oncologists, functional medicine doctors, naturopathic doctors, general family practitioners, integrative oncology experts who think they have all the answers, but frankly don't. They might be protocol driven, but they don't really understand how to choose a therapy for their patient and support their patients in an in of one kind of way. So that's what I see is on the horizon. And it's exciting because we don't have to have the infighting. It doesn't have to be either or. It should be an offering for every single person on this planet to have the very best standard of care specific to them partnered with the very best of alternative care and helping them get through this. I, I still, with the research that's coming out, do not understand why that is not just the way it is. And so you, you know why. It's, but it's true. <laughs> and it's like... Yeah. So that I think I'll, I'll pause there, take a breath, like everyone get a sip of water. I'll take some hibiscus tea. Yeah. Because I think that that, yeah, that's a big, that's a good moment. We'll start there. Yeah, totally. And and I agree completely. And funnily enough, like when I was much younger twenties, when I was just sort of going through this sort of all these epiphanies myself and being like, am I really seeing what I'm seeing? Does it really make sense? Am I, you know, and I become the weird hippie in the office. And it's funny that you refer to naturopathic medicine as like, you know, the, the naughty stepchild. And I, I imagine it's like the hippie auntie that everyone's like, yeah, she's just a bit spiritual. She's just a bit weird. <laughs> but the, the thing that confuses me or not confuses me is that I've watched so many documentaries and connected just with lots of the people that you have and, and, uh, across the years of people that have tried to do what you're doing. And literally being driven out of the country, um, criminalized, sued, loss of license. I'm so curious to know how you did it differently to not be put in that basket. Sure. Well, I mean, first of all, maybe it is my Libraness, but I'm very much, a, uh, like I said, I, I don't want to alienate anybody. I don't want anyone to feel like something is inherently good or bad. Mm -hmm. And so I want people to evaluate data, not dogma. And so that's what I preach about all the time, especially in the nutrition world. You and I've talked about that before as well. Yeah. Um, I don't need, there is no right diet. You have to base it on the patient. You have to base it on them. It's the same thing where there's no right standard of care, right? We call standard of care this sort of what's the word I want to look for? This sort of fictitious, this sort of con contrived approach, which is not based on, the standard of care is not based on your patients. It's based on um, these, these small things like, okay, what's the overall progressive free survival? What's the overall survival? What's the response rate? What's the bottom line of what's the highest dose we can give without killing the patient? That is what they're looking at when they determine and go through the studies to determine what therapies they can offer to a patient. They forget the patient in the equation. Mm -hmm. And so they don't talk about the hundreds, if not thousands of patients that were the early um, adopters of some of those early clinical trials or the guinea pigs in those trials that were um, erased from the data of those trials that didn't make it, that were inherently you know, wounded in some terrible way that, that had to leave, had to stop and go find something else. They don't talk about what happened to all of those people. They only filter out and kind of whitewash and present you the pretty stuff that fits within this lovely, perfect bell-shaped curve to say, this number of patients will have this much improvement of their care. And so before we go into the how do I do it differently, let me just articulate for your listeners a very big elephant in the living room. So in, golly, I think it was October 2021, I could be missing the date on this, a study came out that looked at 92 drugs 
that had been um, put onto the market. So FDA approved medications in the United States that had been put onto the market for cancer from over a 17 year period of time. Okay. So a lot of drugs over that period of time, billions and billions of dollars of research. Okay. Lots of time from the bench to the bedside for them to be put onto the market. And the average, you dump all of those into one bucket, you stir it up and you take a look and the average overall survival that those drugs offered. And and you probably know the answer to this, but we'll take a pause. Does anybody have a guess of what the overall survival rate was for all those patients for those billions of dollars? And God knows what side effects and what quality of life was impacted. It gave them 2.4 months average overall survival. That is what we call the best we can do in standard of care today for oncology, for stage, for especially for later stage cancers. I cannot because, well, I can't speak to it yet, but I will soon because we're building the database and we're collecting the data and we're building out our own um, processes here where we're collecting the data, de, um, you know, sort of decentralized data and de-identified data so that we're not getting our own egos into the mix here. But I can tell you clinically, my outcomes look very different than that. Our overall survival rates far exceed 2.4 months and with quality of life to boot. And I could speak to thousands of patients and patient testimonials to that effect. And we were not just leaning on one single conventional treatment. We were looking at many applications to help support that patient that might include their diet, might include their lifestyle, might include their dealing with their stress response or their spiritual health might include bringing on particular, um, you know, immune therapies from the world of Coley's toxins or mistletoe or hyperthermia might include therapies that are well vetted from the integrative model that are paired with strategically in the right time and place with their conventional therapies, such as fasting before going into their radiation therapy. We have patients that are tolerating conventional therapy much better, having far longer overall survival rates with much better quality of life. And many of those patients are enjoying long-term maintainable disease processes or even full remissions. And yet no one's interested in those conversations. They just simply say, oh, that can't happen. There's no data or you're charlatans or you're just trying to take people's money. And so that's why we're building out what we're building. We're building the database. Um, which will collect our data and we'll be able to publish all of the findings from integrative um, oncology experts all over the world. Mm -hmm. And we are also building this nonprofit hospital so that it does not take insurance. It is a research institute. People will have informed consent knowing they're coming and taking on a therapy that is not FDA approved or is in addition to FDA approved therapies that does not have any industry driven motivation behind any of the things we do there or even research there. And that it's a cost share environment. It's a scholarship and grant environment. It's philanthropic donation environment, and it's a cash pay environment where the cost share drives the overall cost to do integrative care down significantly from what's even available today. And so that segues into kind of how have I done it the way I've done it without having a target on my back? Well, I promise you've had the target on my back my whole career, but ultimately part of the benefit was being a naturopathic doctor. And a lot of people, you know, a lot of people look at that as a deficit, but for me, I did not have the same constructs and the same, well, I do actually, um, but I was in a state where I didn't, we didn't have licensing. So I practiced evidence-informed medicine. I practiced within the scope of my 
education. And I built relationships and partnerships with people much smarter than me in a lot of different environments that we work to help support and collaborate together. I use laboratory data. I use blood biopsies, tissue biopsies, epigenetic data. I use, um, you know, like um, Myers-Briggs and other, you know, standardized um, questionnaire data to drive the clinical decision-making process within my patients. And so basically I take a very thoughtful methodology, test, assess, address, never guess and reassess and adjust accordingly has been my mantra the entire time. And so it's very difficult for people to find fault in that because I'm following data and not dogma. I love everything you're about, as you already know. But this idea of this hospital is just fantastic and feels like some kind of utopia that we'll never get to, which we're obviously on the way to. Um, because of the, I guess, the medical associations and their control over the environment and that type of thing. So when you say that it's like it's a, you know, philanthropic donations and that it's going to be a cash model, does that mean that it's only going to be accessible? And this might be the case in the beginning, oh. as is the case with many new, new technologies, but does that mean it's going to be super expensive and only the wealthy yeah. can get in type thing? Well, this is what's interesting is patients today, because I'm working with patients all over the world today and my colleagues that I'm training and the advocates that I'm training all over the world and the researchers I consult with, anybody knows if you deviate, if you step out of the sandbox of standard of care anywhere in the world, US, UK, Australia, New Zealand, like all over the world, you are going to have to pay out of pocket Mm -hmm. for any additional therapies. And when we start to price that out, When I start to look at the cost of doing business to apply these integrative therapies, it is only accessible by those with means currently. Mm -hmm. It just is. And so a typical, and the crazy thing is if you put it in context, a single, uh, I guess, round or an entire series of chemotherapy is on average $250,000 to $500,000 per person. But you don't see that because you're, you know, having your insurance covering it. So it's going into that model. Um, A typical immune therapy today is somewhere between 500,000 to a million dollars. And specifically a CAR T therapy is well over a million today. And these are like, these are the ones that are the blockbuster, like everyone's wanting treatment. And it's- CAR T cells are the big thing, yeah. So picture this, right? Unlocking your potential, conquering emotional eating and gaining insights directly from a health and nutrition expert such as myself. That's what we do inside the Healthy Mums Collective Facebook group, which is currently free to join. If you've ever felt trapped by food challenges, struggled with maintaining a healthy lifestyle, or yearned for a community that understands the reasons why you've yo-yo dieted for years, then there's a new chapter waiting to be written. And this is your chance to start writing it by joining us all on Facebook Lives, on engaging posts that push you out of your comfort zone and into growth, and Q&A sessions with me. All of this works as a platform to begin changing your emotional eating problems for good. Oh, and also, as a special gift, you receive my transformative How to Turn Food into Self-Confidence ebook. And that's also for free. I get it. Skepticism might linger. You might think, Maddie, I've heard these ads and I'm not sure. Well, at least a quarter of the members inside the Healthy Mums Collective Facebook group have been paying clients of my emotional eating program at some point over the last three or four years. So if you're not sure, you can post in the group and ask to find out if I'm the real deal or not. It's totally up to you. 
To join us in the free Healthy Mums Collective and to end your emotional eating and feel good in your own skin and begin that journey, pop down to the show notes below, click the link and breeze through three simple entry questions. Join today and let's embark on a journey of growth and empowerment. The link is in the show notes below. (laughs) But it is even those who are insured don't have enough insurance to cover that. So they still have to find a way to get this amazing breakthrough. So even in standard of care, people are spending tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars out of their pocket to get therapies to save their lives, even within the standard of care model. Okay. I remember sitting in the office at the hospital and it was almost a daily thing. A doctor would be ringing the pharmaceutical company asking for donation. Be like telling the family's story, the patient's story. It was like a daily thing. It almost never happened, but um, which, you know, they run a business, you know, I get it. But it's, yeah, because you're right, standard of care does become expensive. And then there's all of the incidental costs as well, right? Of having a low quality of life, not being able to work, being so sick that there's so many other things you need to manage as well, plus the impact on the family that's supporting you. So there's, you know, there's there's so many incidental costs as well. It's huge. And that's just it. They don't talk about the cost of just your life, not just the treatment itself of what's going on there. So then when you realize you break that down and you move into the realm of someone with the resources and the means to do integrative care, you're looking at an average of $15,000 to $20,000 per week worth of care. And that's not them like blowing up the price point. It's just that the industry is such that it's, it's you know, like a volume thing. If you have volume, you can bring those yeah. numbers down, right? Just like anything, you know? And But you also do have people who honestly do take advantage. You see that as well. Like I know the real cost, what it costs for me to purchase IV vitamin C for my office, pay my nurses, cover the overhead. I know what the real cost of that is. And yet most people will still take that up several notches. And again, we want people to be good business, business people as well. We want everybody to have abundance, but there's a place where we could find a happy balance where everyone wins. So there's that side, but current model, as you described, is enormously expensive and extremely inaccessible by the majority of people on this planet. Okay. And so one of the goals of our, of the, of this hospital is to make this available and accessible by everyone. Mm-hmm. Day one, when those doors open, that will not be possible, but it will be prob it will be heading in that direction, but mm-hmm. over my time and the the um, legacy I leave behind and many others, it will become the way it is. It's just it's going to be that's the yeah. way it is. I often think about what you're describing now in the regenerative farming movement because a lot of people, because I'm always banging on about regenerative food and people say, oh, it's, but it's so expensive, it's too expensive. But just as you said about uh, demand and increasing the amount of people that want it, Sure, the you know the better off people are going to be the first in the door. But if they don't spend their money at all, we're never going to drive the price down. Exactly. So it's got to start somewhere. Exactly. Well, and here's a really good example. So 23andMe. A lot of people are very familiar with the the um, gene testing company 23andMe, which was started by a, I think I think her ex husband was with Google. I mean, she came from good money. She'd had a a really interest, a deep interest in biology, didn't go that route, but always had a deep interest in it and wanted to bring something to help people know their health risks and, um, you know, do something about it. So she had the right vision for sure. She had the right idea. But when they first started to put it out in the market, it was like $25,000 for somebody to go and have their epigenetic testing run. And, yeah. you know, the, at that time, the Illumina platform that was on was like a, you know, millions of dollar piece of equipment. And they knew that the, even with 
a, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of tests that they wouldn't pay off that piece of equipment. So they knew they were in a sinking ship financially of this model, mm-hmm. but they had long-term vision which you have to have in this field. And what she did is at first they took it down to like 20,000. And then I think there's a great article several years back in Wired magazine that talks about the history of 23andMe, but it outlines that over several years, they knocked the price down that it was like under 5,000 and then more people signed on and more people. And finally they went back to their board and basically said, we have to do this differently. We're going to make this available to every single person for $99. And see, we want to get it to a million samples. And once we hit a million samples, we know we will be paying off the, dip, the machine, basically. And we know that we also have enough data now to mill to start showing people actionable, you know, characterizable information that makes it compelling for people to run a 23andMe. Right. And so within a few short years, they managed to do that and then actually took their price back up to like $199. But then they have these other pricings and specials and you get like family packages. And now, like almost everybody on the planet knows what a 23andMe is. Like it's crazy. I did my 23andMe as one of the early adopters. The second they offered that lower rate, I signed up. And that was years ago. Now I've got like 15,000 second cousins, you know, all these cousins, like the people finding from all over the world, which shows you that this model is going to the point that there are now Mm. thousands of 23andMe like knockoffs around the world, right? And everyone's undercutting the price point of everyone else. And so Mm -hmm. that happened in a relatively short period of time. And that information, by the way, changed my practice changed the lives of many patients, and now has set on fire an entire new line of thinking, of business modeling, of of research, et cetera. So that is just a really good example that we anticipate being that same thing. Like you said, when you're the first to to market, it's going to, just like everyone who would like rush out to buy the new technologies, you know, after a while, the the knockoffs become cheaper, the second year is cheaper. It's those types of ideologies. The other cool thing that we're learning is that there are certain groups of people in the world that don't take insurance. So we use in the United States specifically, where you know we don't have a private. We just are a, you know everyone has to pay for their insurance. Uh, we don't have a private uh, like a national system here. But there are groups of people, the Amish community, as an example, they don't utilize that system. And so, because there's quite a large number of them, hospitals in areas like Ohio, Kentucky, and Pennsylvania have had to come up with a new model for these people, for them to get their healthcare, for them, if they have to stay in the hospital for a couple of weeks, if they have to go through chemotherapy, if they have to go. So they had to create these cash-based, volume-driven, cost-share models that, just to give you an example, these cost-share models are happening all over the United States with imaging companies, so like MRI. An MRI, when you submit it to insurance, is $4,500. When you don't have insurance or you're not, you have a high deductible and you have to pay for it up front, they'll give you a cash discount of $2,500. You're like, wow, that's a big savings. But when you go to these share model environments, you're spending somewhere between two dollars and $400 for that MRI. This is exactly what's happened with like the Amish community, like how they've been able to drive these prices down to what's actually more of the real world cost of doing business. So we have all the resources out there. They're just misallocated. And that's what we plan to break that model with the hospital as well. And then the other side is some of the most, right? And so the other side is some of the most compelling research that's out there today has been philanthropically um, funded 
Because today to even get, so people are always saying, well, there's no studies on this particular integrative or alternative medicine. It's just those studies, there aren't any. Well, of course there aren't because no one wants to fund them. You're only getting funded yeah. people like NIH and these places that are supposed to be third party, but they're absolutely industry driven. And so they're not interested in funding things they basically can't get a return of investment on. So you have people that are now increasingly saying, my grandmother or my so-and-so died of cancer doing everything right from standard of care. And I would like to see them having, have had access to something else. So I want to donate or give an endowment or something in their name to this research project. And a really good example of that in the U.S. is the mistletoe trial at Johns Hopkins. And so the rest of the world, mistletoe is like in their repertoire for most, you know, most places in Europe, um, South America, India, Canada, Mexico. It's actually in their medical registry. So it's basically yeah. to their equivalent of their FDA approval of this. But in the United States, mm -hmm. because the, the research has not happened on our soil, in our institutions, they basically say it didn't exist. It never happened. And so therefore you can't have it here legally. And so my colleagues who... I attend international conferences on mistletoe globally. There are hundreds, if not thousands of studies on the efficacy of mistletoe and, and the safety of mistletoe and how to use it in really unique ways, like intratumorally and interlesionally and all, you know, just all the different things. But until we had this study that was funded by donations of a phase one clinical trial that just closed and just completed, and now they're moving into phase two, this is on U.S. soil. On U.S. soil, out of Johns Hopkins. Now yeah. people are like, well, now maybe mistletoe is something we should consider. It's like, oh, my God, <laughs> the rest of the world's been considering it since 1917, since it first came to market. You know, and yeah. here we are in 2022 when the, when the study closed or when they're ready to move on to the next phase of it. It's like, are you kidding me? So this is what our institute hopes to also avoid. It's like we will be getting because we have so many institutions already coming to us that cannot do the kind of research they want on their own campuses in these big academic, you know, universities with extreme prestige, right? So they're like, <laughs> let's partner up with you because we can get philanthropic funding. We can get grants. We can get the money to run these tests because no one's looking at making a buck at the end of it. They're frankly trying to change humanity. We're trying to change healthcare outcomes. And so that's the big difference is the type of research we're doing is not about how to sell a product, which is what all the research is today. It's about how to help people get access to things in a much more affordable way globally. And so that's the piece that we are trying to break down a lot of these walls and are doing so successfully. And it's like I said, 2023, the momentum is going to be unbelievable. Well, I'm excited for it. And the other thing too, I think is a lot of what I discovered looking through the research in my early days was that a lot of research that does get done in this space just sits on the shelf because um, we can't patent natural molecules. And so we can't have ownership over nature and therefore profit from it in the way that we might like. Although the supplement industry does pretty well. So I don't know why they think like that. Um, but, but yeah, so a lot, of, it's surprising how much research is out there. I remember, um, doing like my normal day job. So it'd be like, you know, leukemia, chemotherapy research during the day. And then I would go and put on a seminar at night to talk about the 6,000 turmeric and cancer cell trials that have been done <laughs> or ginger and like 
It's just crazy how much data sits on the shelf. And a lot of people think, well, if it was if it was legitimate and it had been successfully researched, doctors would be using it. And that just comes with just with a I guess a naivety about how the medical system and the hierarchy of research works, which yeah. is obviously something that you have to be on the inside to understand. And that's really hard because that's just it is there are many of my colleagues who are in the system still who work there and they recognize for themselves that these therapies work, but they are not allowed to recommend them. It, yeah. They would lose their licenses. And so yeah. the workaround is today as, as what I get to be today is I get to be a consultant. And so I no longer practice the brick and mortar side of things because even with my ability to kind of work around as I did for the 17 plus years that I was personally in private practice, it still had limitations. I still had to be very careful of every single thing I said, every single thing. And when I moved into the realm of consulting, I am literally presenting the data and I'm helping the patient advocate for themselves and the physicians be aware of what good data is out there. So we are practicing, um, you know, evidence-informed medicine, not just evidence-based medicine, and that people can recognize they can chart accordingly to say, though I did not recommend this particular therapy, my patient came to me with some compelling data that suggests this is probably safe for them to take with X, Y, and Z. That's the, the place why we want to build these relationships, these partnerships, because we recognize that there are actually many of doctors who want to be helping their patients more and who are trapped in systems that do not allow it. And so that's where we're also trying to create this sort of amazing that in our database that we're doing, we're also creating this sort of library, this, this never ending resource library, which also is accessing information that's out of the PubMed. So PubMed in the United States, we only get about 70% of what's done globally. We filter and all right. Uh-huh. So we use things like Embase and some of these others that open us up to what's out in the world as well. And so we are able to bring that data in and show folks that this isn't something I've made up. It's not something I pulled out of my ass and, and applying to some <laughs> <laughs> but you first of all, like, I want people to think like, would I put my own career, reputation, life, per- passion and purpose, you know, my own life, those are the people close to me, you know, my, my profession at risk by making really irresponsible suggestions or recommendations? No, absolutely not. And so that's where every single thing we do and recommend is based on good data, good information, good research. But also we believe very much that there's no problem in exploring anecdotal evidence. That is the scientific method as well. And so as a living in of one anecdote, and my colleague and, and friend, Kelly, Dr. Kelly Turner, and all of the anecdotes she's collected of her radical remission world and her projects, there are a lot of us walking around on this planet that people seem to not be interested in studying why we're still roaming the earth, right? Or yeah, it's why so bizarre. It is so bizarre. And I'm always shocked at that. But here's the one really shining light is that I could literally like the nurses always get it. Like the nurses would come back and say, I can tell who's your patient and who's not your patient in my small town community. They would know exactly who was getting care at my clinic while they were going through their chemotherapy or their radiation. They always knew they're like, they looked better. They sounded better. They smelled better. They ate better. They, all their labs looked better. Their quality of life was better. They kicked ass through the whole treatment better. They, we didn't see them shortly thereafter. Like you you just see that that goes on and on, but the it was like ears, eyes, everything blocked of the doctors, like, I don't see it. I don't hear it. I can't talk about it in my small town. 
the oncology team, I tried for 12 years to get my foot in the door. And by the time I finally did, he retired. And then I had to like start all over with the next tier. And it was just (laughs) crazy. It was so exhausting. I realized I did not want to spend my, my life convincing anyone. Yes, Anyways, I came like, to that same conclusion. Right. And so instead, I'm like, I'm just going to go do me. I'm just going to go keep doing what I'm doing. I'm going to keep gathering information, gathering research, learning all that I can, studying with and visiting hospitals and clinics and research institutes all over the world, both standard of care and integrative. I'm going to just keep putting all this information in this basket and see what shakes loose. And man almighty, there is so much more we can be doing. There are so many better outcomes than what we're all being offered as is that I just, I know we're reaching that hundredth monkey. I know I'm going to see it in my lifetime. If you'd asked me this question five years ago, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, I would have thought no way in hell I'll die before this ever comes to fruition. Um, maybe not of cancer, but of old age at that point, because I never could see <laughs> the horizon. And so that's what was just so interesting is something is changing, Maddie. And so I feel yeah. Like you said, like something shifted in the last couple of years. Is it it the COVID conundrum? Is it whatever it is, people are starting to question the standard. They're starting to think more systematically. They're starting to think more terrain over tumor. And in fact, that's where all the research is starting to move into as well. They're starting to focus more on the patient and the center of the equation. And that is glorious. Like that gives me absolute hope and inspiration that we are finally, finally, potentially stepping closer to the right path. Oh, absolutely. And the fact that you're creating a place that this can all happen at the Metabolic Terrain Institute of Health is just phenomenal. And the other thing that I want to just clarify Mm -hmm. for listeners, the word terrain, uh, it was interesting. So I went to a lot of protests during the COVID period, as many of the listeners know. I was very rebellious during that time. Um, but I often would be asked, um, because I'm usually the only scientist at protests, um, you know, what do you think about germ theory versus terrain theory? Um, you know, germ theory is a lie from Big Pharma, blah, 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 all the rabbit hole conspiracy theories. But what... The, the use of the word terrain, what does it mean to you? What should it mean to everybody listening? Sure. So for me, terrain means basically everything that's happening. We're, we're not, nothing in us is siloed off and nothing outside of us, frankly, is siloed off from us. Um, and so we are just lots of interwoven connections happening within our bodies, hormones, neurotransmitters, metabolic processes, biochemical processes, all of these things are happening simultaneously, whether you know it or not going on in there. And they're all dependent on information coming into, on, and around you. And each time those things come in, they send off all types of other signals and information. And what that's landing in, within, and on the near surroundings of you is what I call the terrain. Science might call might call it. Um, other scientists might call it the extracellular matrix. So when you get down to that uh, molecular level, you look down under a microscope and you look at cells and you see what those cells are floating around in the cytoplasm within the cells, and also just what they're floating around in outside. You know, um, outside of that, that's considered kind of the extracellular matrix, the intracellular matrix. That's one component of this. Others call it the tumor microenvironment. So what that tumor is actually sitting in. So you might've heard these terms, but in essence, they're all the same thing. It's like, what kind of soup 
is stuff is happening inside of your body. What, what kind of ingredients inside of you are interacting in a way to express health or disease? And then in another way, because I'm so passionate about regenerative agriculture and farming and food as medicine is very much around the soil. And so the soil of our food, the soil that our food is being raised in is very sick and sickly, and very malnourished. And therefore the food that comes out of that is sick and sickly and malnourished. And therefore the animals that it feeds sick, sickly and malnourished. And if we eat those food, you know, those plants or those animals, we are sick, sickly and malnourished. And so our um, very health in our very terrain um, and extracellular matrix and tumor microenvironment are very dependent on the soil outside of us to tend to and nourish the soil inside of us. So it's massive. It's not just this siloed process of I'll just take this pill of probiotics and I'll be all better, right? <laughs> or I'll just yeah. take this pharmaceutical for my cardiovascular disease and I'll be better. We have to be thinking about this in a much more global perspective. And so I recognized in my own healing all those years ago, and then I'm still, I'm still on the journey, still with all of you on this healing journey, is that if I didn't also heal my thoughts, my relationships, the, the way I interact in the world, what I nourish my body with, where, where that food that I nourish my body with comes from, I needed to realize I was part of something much bigger than myself. And that was actually, and still continues to be very instrumental in my own healing. And so when I'm talking to patients, I'm talking about, let's explore your terrain. Let's understand what's making your terrain express disease or health. And let's change that up. Let's work on that. And so that's very specifically for what I mean. And I know there's a million different ideas around it, but I'm sure you've had people talk about Beauchamp and Pasteur on your, on your mm -hmm. conversations. And then fast forward, the person who was very significant that influenced me was Dr. Mina Bissell, famous um, oncology researcher and her work in the extracellular matrix. You know, she like gave it a new name or, you know, that, that gr group in the eighties gave it a new name. And then now today in the you know, from around 2011 or 12, we started talking about the tumor microenvironment. It's all the same. Mm -hmm. We've been saying these things for, and you know, for forever. I mean, and way back, let's yeah. go way back to even pre-Hippocrates of the concepts of the humors and the concepts of these sort of internal um, relationships that are happening within us and, and how they relate to things outside of us. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's talked about in Chinese medicine. Absolutely. Like the Thousands, Eons. yeah, three thousand years, and then before that, Ayurveda. So you know, yeah. Ayurveda is like the great grandmother of standard medicine. I mean, conventional allopathic. Yes, I love Ayurveda. Yeah, I mean, conventional allopathic medicine came out of Ayurveda. Surgery came out of Ayurveda. Acupuncture came out of our Ayurveda. The Marma points came out of Ayurveda, um, and even our. Um, Modern modern pharmacology came out of Ayurveda, the oldest medical text, the Chakra Samhita, over 5,000 years ago, was already showing this, but they did not throw the baby out with the bathwater, which we yeah. did in today's modern standard of care allopathic approach. They brought it all. They had this holistic view of understand the body before you apply the treatment. And today we've separated the, the body from the treatment and we just give the treatment and we just give it, give it, give it, give it, give it, give it, give it. And we kind of are confused when it doesn't work or it kills them or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think as well, like you hear all of these, like you mentioned radical remission before you hear all of these stories of people doing, you know, these random things or these spiritual things. And then that being the answer. And I think, 
it's so shocking to people because when they think about the terrain or their environment that they live within, all they think about is the food they put in their mouth. And beyond that, maybe the place that they work has some toxic chemicals. <laughs> and the, like, and beyond that, they don't really think about, yeah, the terrain of relationships, of connections, of the thoughts about myself, my belief system about the world. And we really enter some woo-woo territory for a lot of people when we go there because, well, when you're new to those big yeah. sort of, you know, fluffy ideas, they are quite fluffy uh, and not very tangible in the beginning. And it takes a few years of exploring that space to be like, oh, this is as much a part of my terrain as the food that I eat. And beautifully, we now have, we have a lot of good research on this. And we've had mm. research, you know, the psycho neuroimmunology field um, that Robert Ader brought to, to our attention in the 70s and 80s and later uh, Candace Pert and beyond that, Bruce Lipton and beyond that, I mean, we have so many scientists out there studying that psycho neuroimmunology. So how our thoughts impact our immune system and our endocrine system and vice versa. There's just this weave that you cannot separate them out. Descartes was wrong. You know, he completely created this this separation of mind and body, and we've perpetuated that in our in our medical world um, far too long. And yet, it's so easy to see as a clinician. People think I have a crystal magic ball when I can even look with where the disease showed up in the body and how it was expressing mm -hmm. and the symptoms they've had. And I start asking them questions about relationships, about their parents, about their children, about their you know their their partner, about different things, and they look at me like I'm I've got a crystal ball because I'm literally helping them read the biology of their biography and the biography of their biology that they go hand in hand. And so it's not a shock. Once people kind of wake up to it, you can't unsee it, you know, I think is, is one of the things, but there's plenty of studies out there backing these converse, these woo-woo esoteric conversations that we're having. Oh, totally. I actually, just before you and I jumped on, I emailed Bruce Lipton. So hopefully he'll be hanging out here soon too. Let's do it. Let's get all good. I mean, I bow to that man. He, um, he doesn't know <laughs> me for Sam, but we have so many uh, good friends in common so many colleagues in common, so many historical kind of patients in common. Um, he's mm -hmm. very instrumental. I mean, his book, Biology of Belief, was also uh, came into my life at a time when um, I was still recovering from my, you know, really healing from my own cancering process. And I feel like was just added uh, pieces. I mean, if I tell your listeners, like the book that changed my life at the time of my diagnosis, when they told me I'd be dead in three months, I went to the library. This is October, 1991, actually September, 1991 is when I went to the library, picked up this book, never heard of this guy before. Um, and a book called Quantum Healing by this crazy guy named Chopra, um, Deepak Chopra. Right? I was like, huh. I sat down, I read that book in two hours and it changed my life. And then I ran across, um, you know, years later, I ran across the book, Lawrence Lashan's book, Cancer as a Turning Point. Another like unbelievable epiphany for me. Biology of Belief, Candace Pert's um, Molecules of Emotion. You know, so many of these books changed my life that to the point where I was pre-med, in my undergrad, I was biology, chemistry um, degree, and I shifted to a biology, psychology degree to create in 1990 uh, and 1991, a neuro, a psycho neuroimmunology degree. Basically, I self-constructed my major. That's how instrumental it was in changing my life and changing my health on this journey with cancer. Um, and so it's very difficult for me to meet with a patient dealing with cancer without also addressing that piece. In fact, it's the 10th drop in the bucket I talk about in the metabolic approach to cancer book, but it should be the first. But if I started talking about that with everybody right from the get-go, they'd all slam the door. Yeah. 
<laughs> so we get there eventually. Yeah, yeah. So picture this, right? Unlocking your potential, conquering emotional eating, and gaining insights directly from a health and nutrition expert such as myself. That's what we do inside the Healthy Mums Collective Facebook group, which is currently free to join. If you've ever felt trapped by food challenges, struggled with maintaining a healthy lifestyle, or yearned for a community that understands the reasons why you've yo-yo dieted for years, then there's a new chapter waiting to be written. And this is your chance to start writing it by joining us all on Facebook Lives, on engaging posts that push you out of your comfort zone and into growth, and Q&A sessions with me. All of this works as a platform to begin changing your emotional eating problems for good. Oh, and also, as a special gift, you receive my transformative How to Turn Food into Self-Confidence ebook. And that's also for free. I get it. Skepticism might linger. You might think, Maddie, I've heard these ads and I'm not sure. Well, at least a quarter of the members inside the Healthy Mums Collective Facebook group have been paying clients of my emotional eating program at some point over the last three or four years. So if you're not sure, you can post in the group and ask to find out if I'm the real deal or not. It's totally up to you. To join us in the free Healthy Mums Collective and to end your emotional eating and feel good in your own skin and begin that journey, pop down to the show notes below, click the link and breeze through three simple entry questions. Join today and let's embark on a journey of growth and empowerment. The link is in the show notes below. Totally. Well, I'm glad you mentioned the book too. So the metabolic approach to cancer, because that's where I found you um, reading that book. And I learned so much along my journey of being like, surely there's a different way to do cancer. And why are all of the people that walk in the front door obese? Clearly it's connected to food, you know, and these really ridiculous ideas to say out loud in an actual cancer hospital. (laughs) Um, And so maybe can you just share a little bit with the listeners on the book because it's a profound text that everybody needs to get their hands on, especially with what we're expected to see with cancer numbers in the future. Oh my gosh. Well, thank you for that. I mean, I can't believe this book has been out. It'll be six years in May. And Jess and I keep thinking we got to get together and like bring up a new edition, but we're so busy with other things that we're sort of living the new editions out in real time because the science, the data, the information is changing so quickly, not changing, but adding to, I mean, we could turn this book into like a three-part volume at this point because of the data that's come out to support what we've said. So I feel very pleased that for the most part, the book is still very current and relevant. Um, And so the metabolic approach to cancer is really the walkthrough of how to think about cancer in a different way, how to understand this concept of terrain, how to explore and test your own terrain, how to assess your own patterns, and how to start to think about different ways of addressing them in addition to what standard of care is offering. And so there's that book. And then in November 2021, um, myself and six other colleagues, we um, rolled out after uh, much, much, we were like, we got to get this out here, which is the book Mistletoe and the Emerging Future of integrative oncology. And so though it's very mistletoe centric, it's also very hopeful about where the future of oncology is going. And so that's a newer book that really you'll hear voices from my colleagues that are also just brilliant in their own rights all over this world um, who wrote on that. And then I continue to um, speak and teach all over the world. I think this year, I think I'm speaking at so far 13 medical conferences globally. Um, just this year, I think last year I hit over 30. The year before, during COVID, it, it shut down. But the year before that, before COVID shut down, I think I spoke at 42 conferences. And most of these conferences, you guys, are standard 
researchers and standard of care conferences, it's very interesting that um, my own community, the integrative medicine, even the naturopathic medicine is almost less interested in hearing it um, either because I think they either think they already know it all or they're all still so trying to con- convince the rest of the world that they're a conventional trained doctor. Like I, I see that in a lot of my colleagues too, that they're trying to impress the standard of care. But I'm telling you guys, the standard of care jump and ship and they're coming onto our boat. <laughs> they're jumping on our life raft and we're taking them on a new journey. So we're getting so many amazing um, conventional oncologists just saying, it's got, we have to do something different. I mean, I can just think of one of them that just graduated from our program a couple uh, months ago, actually just over a year ago. Um, he found me as a head of his own institute in um, the United States of a big cancer institute and research center and hospital. And when he started seeing patients all under the age of 10 with stage four ovarian cancer, that's when he was like, whoa, got to get something's wrong. And our paths crossed because of my ovarian cancer history and a few other patients we had in common. And he's now one of the Mm -hmm. biggest proponents of this. It's like, it takes like a shaking, you know, like a life shaking to wake you up to this, which is unfortunate. I I wish it didn't have to be that way, but it is. And the fact that more than, you know, over 50% of the population will experience a diagnosis of cancer in their lifetime globally. Um, about 50% of the population will have their wake up, shake up call. And hopefully um, a chunk of those will decide to look a bit above and beyond what's being offered and know that there are more hopeful uh, options on the horizon. Well, you're creating many options, which is fantastic. And you mentioned Jess in there too. So Jess, for everybody listening, shout out to Jess Higgins-Kelly. She's an amazing human. Yes. um, And she co-authored the book as well. And she's been on the show as well on episode 171. So check check out Jess. She's she's fantastic. Go have a listen. She's a spitfire. She is so much fun. She's so much fun. Yeah, bless her. She got me on for the on the Oncology Nutrition Institute to do a guest lecture. So awesome. what a legend. I love that. Yes, you are famous there too, my friend. So now you're famous on this side of the planet. Famous. <laughs> nice. Please, please. Um, so obviously love this idea and everybody listening obviously does too because you'd be crazy not to. So where can everybody find you and the Metabolic Terrain Institute of Health and keep tabs on the progression of everything that's going on so that we can continue to give this platform a voice? Thank you. Well, first, I think easiest to start with mtih.org. That's the nonprofit uh, Metabolic Terrain Institute of Health uh, site that gets you onto our newsletter, gets you all the updates, starts to take you on some tours. We are getting ready to launch our whole new uh, uh, website in um, by, I think, early February of 2023. So it should look very different than it does right now. So keep coming back. We will be having a lot of updates and press releases. There is so much going on and it will blow your ever-loving mind. So start there. That does link also back to me, drnasha.com, D-R-N-A-S-H-A.com. So that can take you back there. You can also take a look at MATC, Metabolic Metabolic Approach to Cancer, the book, and um, the mistletoebook.com is where you can also check out more information about the mistletoe book as well. But all of those places are kind of cross-pollinated about the events, about newsletters, about updates, about how you can get involved, donate, volunteer, um, take one of our courses, become a certified advocate, become a certified physician in our training and take to be, become part of this unbelievable international movement as we change the way cancer is being dealt with. Yeah, it's so fantastic. And for everybody listening, if you've enjoyed this episode or you got anything out of it or you want to be a part of sharing this message of changing the way that cancer and healthcare is done, which we know from 
you know, over 200 episodes of this podcast, the whole reason that I'm here sharing this message is because I strongly believe it needs to be done differently. And Nasha is absolutely leading the way in, in doing that. So please share it with a friend, share it with maybe someone that's had cancer or got cancer. Maybe it'll open their mind to a different perspective um, and give us both a tag so that we can see the community grow as well. Um, and so just before we wrap up, I got a couple of questions as we sort of head out the back door. First question is, do you cringe every time you hear my Australian accent say your name? I, first of all, it, I never cringe when anybody says my name. My own family members have a difficult time saying my name. And I live in Mexico where the A is soft. So everyone in Mexico calls me mm. Nasha. And I'm like, okay. I'm good. But when I hear accents from all over, I, it doesn't even phase me. I know who I am. Okay, good. <laughs> And I know it's like, it's not easy. I, te- I teased my mom. She needed to make it like N-A-I or N-A-Y-S-H-A, but, but it does not make me cringe at all. So thank you. That's so sweet. <laughs> no, no, not it sounds, it sounds so much more eloquent when you say it than I hear me and I'm like, Nasha. <laughs> <laughs> well, I grew up in Kansas and so we get a little twin shards and it's usually like, Nasha, Nasha. It gets a little bit of a twang to it. So you're nowhere near that twang. It's more elegant okay, good, good, out good. of your mouth than it was from where I grew up. <laughs> <laughs> well, even here in Australia, my accent is clear enough that I'm sometimes mistaked for British. Oh, well, there you go. Jeez. <laughs> You've been, you're enunciating way too well. <laughs> too clear. Too clear. Um, so I've got a question, and this is an interesting five-year period to ask this question, but what is something that you believed five years ago that you no longer believe to be true anymore? so amazing on this one. Um, cause I can think about through my career, how many things have changed. Mm-hmm. I, I've changed. I mean, I'm not the same doctor I was anywhere along the, the journey in the last five years. There's been so much information about, um, uh, insulin potentiation therapy. And so insulin potentiation therapy is like in the integrative oncology world, everyone gets excited and everyone is like, this is the better way to do chemo. It's lower dose chemotherapy, way less toxic. You give them a shot of insulin, you drive the glucose way down, you insert a 10% of the chemotherapy, all of those starving cancer cells suck up the chemotherapy and the healthy cells are not um, and, you know, hindered by the chemotherapy and all is well. And, and you hear lots of stories about this. When I was trained in IBT over 20 years ago, this was a really amazing idea, amazing concept, just incredible because it was like, great, this is a much less toxic way to do chemotherapy. But what we've learned in the last five to 10 years is all about insulin and insulin growth factor and mTOR. And what I started to recognize is all of my patients who'd ever gone to somebody, because I never gave IPT myself, I just trained in it, so I understood it, and I referred a lot of patients out for it, they'd all have an amazing response to it initially, but invariably the cancer would come back and come back with a vengeance and the patients would succumb to the disease almost every single time. And so that was really disturbing to me. And now as integrative oncology is starting to pick up a lot more momentum and there are a lot more IPT clinics popping up around the world. I am pretty adamant about getting on my soapbox and shouting that that is a very bad idea Um, and that there's a way to do metronomic, meaning very low dose fractionated chemotherapy in a deeply fasted state with um, being in a high state of ketosis or even taking a bump of exogenous ketones to drive the glucose down further and the ketones up higher and to avoid the insulin altogether. That is the biggest thing that I have thrown away because the research is too compelling and the data that I have on all the patients and all my colleagues who've collected that data is too compelling to ignore the reality of that situation. So that's what I've changed my mind on the last five to 10 years. 
Thanks for sharing that. And that's a really good uh, segue for me to let everybody know episode 95, because on episode 95, we talked a lot about uh, the keto diet in regards to uh, cancer cell growth and the way that insulin works and sugar works in a cancer context. So head over there, everybody. Um, And just to wrap up, what of all the amazingness that you've been doing since we last hung out, what is one piece of health information, if anybody's to take anything away today, that you wish more people knew about? I'm telling you, I wish people would go back to the basics, to the simple things of watching the sunrise and the sunset. It so sets your circadian rhythm on track. It so brings in the right frequency of light that starts to already fine tune your mitochondrial function. It so starts with a perfect ritual to start and end your day and create intention. And that sets off a whole cascade of cellular communication and terrain enhancement that is free. So that would be my thing. I love that. Thanks so much for being here, Nasha. I love spending time with you and you're just so amazing and I can't wait to have you back. So hit me up anytime you want to sing at the top of the mountains uh, (laughs) about what you're doing because I'm here for it. Um, And I hope we catch up really soon. I do too. Thank you so much. And thank you so much for all you're doing. All the best. You too. Bye. Thanks for listening to the How to Not Get Sick and Die podcast. If you love this episode and health information is your thing, then please consider subscribing to the show. And when you're done, head over to iTunes, Google Podcast, or whichever app you use, and we'd be grateful if you could leave us a five-star rating and write a review sharing your opinion on the show as it really helps the podcast grow. Thanks so much, and I'll see you on the next episode. Whilst the presenter that feature on this podcast endeavour to provide accurate information, it cannot possibly take into account your individual circumstances, and therefore the content on this podcast provided by any of the speakers is not intended as advice in any way for any individual, and should not be a replacement for professional medical or health advice of any nature. Always seek advice regarding your personal situation from a qualified medical professional.